Welcome back. Thanks for joining us in part two of the rural-focused episodes. We have the conclusion of the interview with Dr. Milne speaking about postal code medicine and the realities of practicing rurally. So in regarding to the ER closures and the health human resource crisis that we're seeing in rural Ontario, what are, what are the realities that we're seeing right now? There was, I think, close to, if not more than 80 ER closures in Ontario uh, this summer. Now, I don't want to be so Ontario-centric because I know that this is a problem that has been um, in the Maritimes uh, for quite some time. We're seeing lots of stories out of BC now with hospital closures that have had trouble in the West. I mean, this is not unique. This is not a unique problem to any part of Ontario. But I, I'm more familiar with the Ontario statistics because this summer was especially bad with uh, roughly 80 closures of um, ERs. And, and the vast majority of these were in smaller centers, r- what you would consider rural. Um, and so it was, it, was really, it was really sad to see. And uh, the, the biggest problem was HR, human resources, and nurses more than anything else, more than physicians. Um, uh, there is just a real difficulty staffing these rural hospitals with nurses and it's and it's a real tragedy for those communities because when they close either at night so they just close at night so they're not 24 hours a day so technically from my it doesn't meet the definition of an emergency department uh, more like an urgent care center um, or uh, one one place was closed for I don't know six eight weeks straight you know poor community there uh, to uh, their postal code was determining their access to care. So with these realities, uh, what do you think can be done to incentivize current medical students and even practicing physicians or residents to, to really go rural? Well, I think if you just listen to this podcast, you'll uh, hear that there are people that are just so passionate about rural care. Um yeah, it's amazing where you end up. I originally did not want to be a rural physician. I was going to be a subspecialist doing pediatric orthopedic surgery, a pediapod, probably somewhere in the United States, given the job market when I was graduating, that I would do be working in a large uh, center somewhere in the United States. And here I am, you know, my whole career working in small town Ontario. Love it. Um, so yeah, don't get too disappointed if you don't end up where your career goals are. You know, the definition of success, people think I had a goal and I achieved the goal. It's more like, okay, fail, 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 fail. Oh, this is where I ended up, you know, like just enjoy the process. Um, the journey can be tough. Uh, but you asked me about incentives. I'm very cautious about incentives because I, incentives, often people think that it's about money and, I've seen in in experience, you know, like these return of service contracts that have been offered, paying student loans down, those types of things. You know, I I want people to come and stay in rural areas because they love it, not because they forgave their student loan. Student loan's another issue, okay? Like, it's ridiculously expensive. Let's let's address that. And let's not say we're going to buy off medical students and pay off their student loan. And then they sign a contract and three to five years later, they go, well, thank you very much and leave. I don't, I don't, that's the system. So I'm not blaming students for doing that. Absolutely not. Um, Don't hate the player, hate the game. And the game was created that way. And I think we got to address the rules of the game uh, instead of blaming the players of the game. 
So I take a different approach. I think we need to expose people who have never been exposed to the vast joy that you can have practicing. You're the ologist. Like you, you get to, you get to pra like practice medicine up until your fullest potential possible. So you get to be the cardiologist, the respirologist, the gynecologist, the optometologist, the orthopatologist. You are all of it when you're an emergency, when you're um, in a small town, um, because you're going to have to travel great distances. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really academically satisfying, right? It's really challenging. It keeps you on top of your game. And, and, and I, I look at it from that aspect of it. Also, uh, you know, when you're talking about practice of medicine, there's more than the practice of medicine, just the intellectual demands, which I find very stimulating. Uh, but the patient population is super appreciative, right? Like, yeah. Let a doctor be a doctor. It is so good. And of course, if you want to, you know, steer back to financial, I'll tell you, the price of a house in a small town is a lot different than the price of a house in Toronto. You know, so, uh, you know, if you're paying off student loans. But um, the other part is, and, and I learned this from Jim Rourke, Dr. Rourke from the Rourke Baby Record, uh, grow your own, right? There are a lot of people out there that are super qualified that can never get into medical school because of the way the system works. It's very difficult coming from a small town and, and the opportunities that may uh, have there. So if you can expose people and it wasn't, I, I think by the f end of first year of medical school, it's too late. I think you got to be doing it in high school. And so I participate with a organization called Gateway and Gateway is the only independent uh rural research uh, center in Canada. And so they take high school students and they do a summer camp and expose them to rural medicine. And it's like, and it doesn't have to be a doctor. It can be a doctor, a nurse, a physiotherapist, a phlebotomist, a DI, like all of these jobs that are available, really great jobs that are available in small towns. And uh, we have a camp for them and I give a talk on, you know, how to do casting and stuff like that. And it's just that spark. Hey, it could be me. I could be that. I could do that. And so that's even before they go to university. And then once they go to university, you still got to keep them in the rural areas. So have summer positions in rural areas in medicine or in healthcare that they can go back to, whether it's research or whether it's work related. So they can go back and work in a hospital or work in a doctor's office, something like that, work in a family health team, work in a community center of some kind, have them come back and be connected and stay within their community. And then when they go uh, to medical school, I think medical school should uh, expand and increase the number of places that, sure, you know, we've learned from COVID, most of this learning, you know, this sort of standardized learning, um, they were doing virtually they had to right they were forced to do it so you know it doesn't it doesn't matter what your postal code is you don't need to be you know and you say the ivory tower but there are some beautiful buildings on western campus you don't have to be in that beautiful building we're doing this remotely so you could educate people remotely while not taking them out of their community and certainly by clerkship why can't the clerkship be done I mean, I know there there's barriers and we've got to make sure the education is great and, you know, all that stuff. But that can be delivered. We're doing that now with podcasts, 
right? We can, we can do asynchronous education. Do you think most students now are learning out of a textbook? It's just expensive wallpaper sitting on the shelf and you're buying these hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Of, you know, you can take that information and have it anywhere accessible at any time on practically any platform. So why does it have to take place in the city? Let them train both academically and clinically for the clinical skills in the community. And so I think that, um, I think that's what could be done. And, and oh, once you get that first taste, it's hard to go back. It definitely the uh, the exposure that I got through like Hanover and Discovery Week, and then just even your, f- your first times, right? Like the first time I delivered a baby, the first time I put stitches in, the first time I was able to have the honor of uh, attending and bearing witness to someone with palliative care and being involved in that important part of their life. The whole journey from womb to tomb, cradle to grave. You're there, and and you're not through you know, all these layers of, okay, you've got the senior, we got the staff and then you got the senior fellow and then you got the PGY four and then you got the PGY one. And then you've got the senior medical student who's doing an elective there. And then now you're the clerk or the medical student. I'm like, is the patient in the room or where, where, where is it? Yeah. There's so many layers, especially in academic centers, but in my summer experiences in rural areas, it's, I'm the only student there. So if a learning opportunity comes up, it's, Hey, you get that learning opportunity if you want it. And that's that whole idea of just being a true generalist is what, what excites me and what at least brings draws me towards uh, practicing early. And then, I mean, being involved in the discovery camps uh, this year was honestly some of the most fun I've ever had. I think I probably Wasn't that fun? I had a little bit more fun than maybe some of the kids uh, <laughs> <laughs> even doing it. It was phenomenal. And so through the work from Gateway and the Distributed Education Office at Schulich here, um, and being able to put these camps on and, and really start it, the Growing Your Own uh, Health Resource, which is just, I think that's kind of where definitely we're going to get some of uh, some of these people that will come back and practice and stay rural. Yeah, and I think, I think that'll work much better than um, saying, hey, uh, come out here, sign a contract for four years, we'll pay off your student loans. Yeah. Then you're just going to get an endless cycle of very talented and very caring physicians but they're not going to stay because there are other things that influence why you choose to practice in a certain area. And if your if your passion and joy and fulfillment of life isn't doing comprehensive care with limited backup and limited resources, and that's fine. If your passion is, I'm passionate about doing something completely different that I need a volume in a city practice. Maybe you're going to be focusing on, uh, opioid use dependence, or maybe you're going to be focusing on more psychotherapy. Maybe you're going to want to do some other kind of uh, practice that's more narrow. Super. We need that. Absolutely. But we want the people to be in the right place, uh, giving care because they love to do that wherever that is. And so, but I am going to, oh, Aaron, Aaron, before I forget, you said at the academic center, that's a trigger for me. I just thought I'd let you know, um, because I think academia and academics isn't postal code related. Oh no, just to circle back. Uh, at South Huron Hospital, which is, uh, their motto is the little hospital that does. We were the little hospital that did 50 research projects in 10 years. 50, five zero in 10 years. OMG. Like, you know, we were 
extremely academic and are extremely academic. So I call them rural aces, rural academic centers of excellence. People are more concerned about what's between your ears than what room you're sitting in and, and whether the tower is ivory or, yeah, this isn't a tower. It's only got one floor, right? So, um, yeah, you triggered me there. I, I think that there's academic centers are everywhere. I, th I just, I dichotomize into, well, it's urban or rural. And then there's a spectrum, obviously, between what is considered urban and what is considered rural. Because you go to some towns and they're, oh, yeah, we're really rural. And it's like, you know, you've got 30,000 people in this town, a hospital with five floors and a CT scanner and general surgery, internal medicine, pediatric, you know, and, and then you go to the other hospital, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're rural. Well, you know, you're a town of 5,000 and you've got a lab that's there and an x-ray machine. And they go, oh, you're not rural. Have you ever worked in Lion's Head? It's a small house, <laughs> you know, and there's and and. It's crazy. So, um, you know, everybody's definition of rural is um, I'm smaller than you. But um, academic, oh, yeah, academics is where your brain is. What advice would you have then for the public wanting to advocate uh, for rural health care and to kind of lessen these discrepancies that we see between rural and urban uh, settings? Um. You know, that's a bit of a challenging question because I don't like to, I don't like to tell people what to do. Fair. Um, I don't like to tell you know quote the public. Um, as an individual, just what's important to you. Think about that and reflect on what's important to you. And I think I will speak for myself. What's important to me as a somebody who grew up on a farm. I didn't mention that. It was an apple farm, so the apple a day didn't really keep the doctor away. I mean, it was the exact opposite. So as, a, as somebody who grew up on a farm and then 20 years uh, living in Godridge, I think from my standpoint, it would be I want access to robust primary care. We've got to support primary care. It's so fundamental and working uh, together in teams like, again, team patient, not not it's the doctor's office, it's the patient's office. Like to, to, to have that mindset of changing your frame of reference to this is about patient care. So it should be team patient and have team care based on the patients. And so advocating for access to primary care and then accessing um, again to that other end of the extreme to to emergency care so that if you have some critical illness that you will have access to appropriate care and I, and I'm going to be careful here because I don't I'm not one of those people that thinks that we need a hospital with a 24 hour uh, seven days a week 365 emergency department every 20 minutes down the road most Canadians don't have access to that you go out to Alberta you've got Calgary Red Deer and uh, Edmonton you know, and they're an hour and a half apart and an hour and a half apart, and they don't have hospitals in between. And we've got this sort of um, small area, or sorry, we've got this area in Ontario where we have all of these hospitals um, fairly close together within 20 or 30 minutes of each other. And they're all offering very similar services. And we've got to think smartly about Okay, well, do we have to have overnight services, emergency services at every hospital? Or, you know, what is better? Do we randomly close things from time to time, which I think is very unsettling? 
and very unpredictable for patients. They they need to call the hospital. And go. So are you guys open today? Um, or or do we have? Listen, we are going to have these very robust uh, centers that are open for a defined period of time, but it's not 24 hours a day, like an urgent care center offering all the things they're currently offering. And that at a certain time at night, usually, instead of dropping the number of ambulances available, we actually make that system more robust and have, act okay, so you have an emergency, you call 911, we've got great paramedics, very highly skilled paramedics, and they can assess you and take you to the larger center, the secondary center, that does have those 24-hour uh, service, that has that evening service or overnight service, that it can address the chest pains and the belly pains and more of the, oh, I think I broke my ankle or broke my hip, those types of things. But you need to, you can't, you can't um, have limited hours on the one side and then do what they typically do right now is decrease the number of trucks on the road after hours because the call volume goes down. That's when you need to make it more robust so that the you ensure that the patients in those rural areas still have access to timely care. And so that timely care might be in the town one over, but that way you can micro allocate scarce medical resources like do we need two nurses in every emergency department overnight 20 minutes apart? because you need to have two for safety reasons, for safety of the staff. Um, could you have two nurses every other hospital or something like that? Um, or uh, And then again, having a physician on call and that physician is gonna have to work the next day and then they can't. And so now you've got to get outside temporary help to cover the emergency department for low volumes. And so can, can we come to a, a decision from a society standpoint? Cause it's not my decision to make. I'm just, just spitballing here. Um, because uh, I know how important local hospitals are, but to reframe it as we're not closing hospitals because that's what's going to end up happening. They just won't be able to have all these hospitals giving every single service. We don't have all hospitals giving every single service in every area. Like for obstetrics, as an example, there are some hospitals that do it and some hospitals that don't based on volume. And so when somebody comes in, they'll have to be uh, going to another uh, center that might be down the road a bit. The same thought process might ha have to happen with regards to access to emergency care, but they need access to emergency care. And part of that access means a robuster EMS system. So what would I tell the public to advocate for? I wouldn't tell them anything. I would just say from my standpoint, I wanna have access to primary care. And as physicians, you should have your own family doctor. Saw mine two weeks ago, by the way. So have a family doctor as a medical professional. And so you got access to primary care and let's, let's really take a hard look and think about how we can have a better system for access to emergency care when we need it. I like that idea of taking all those different silos and putting together to make a co-op, if you will. Yes. A co-op. Sure. Healthcare co-op. And mm -hmm. that just allocates. I might co-op that statement and use it later. You're more than welcome to. I think that is all the questions that uh, we had had to grill you with, Dr. Milne, and it was a fantastic podcast. Thanks for coming on. Uh, where could our viewers find you on the, uh, the internet with the projects you're involved in? So I'm on Twitter, and that is at the SGEM, so T-H-E-S-G-E-M, so at the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, at the SGEM, but also the blog is also at or www 
thesgem.com. And each week I do a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication trying to cut the knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence. And so we love talking nerdy. So every week and this week, we've got to show up on uh, therapeutic, in air quotes, therapeutic hypothermia post in-hospital cardiac arrest. Should we be chilling these people down? Should be we? Should we be cooling them? Spoiler alert, no statistical difference in the primary outcome between normothermia. Oh, there I did. Now you don't have to listen to the 20-minute podcast. But yeah, so yeah, you can find me on um, uh, Twitter. You can find me on a blog and uh, certainly on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you listen to your pods. Come over to the SGEM and listen to some nerdiness. That concludes our episodes focused on rural health and postal code medicine. Thanks for listening to the Hashtag Health Podcast. If you have questions about anything discussed in the episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to our Instagram at Hashtag Health. We look forward to having you tune in again.